What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Rideshare Rodeo, Uber Lyft driver and gig economy news. Sponsored by Curry.com. I'm your host, SJ. Let's get it on. What's up, everybody? How's your week going? I guess it's just getting started, huh? Uh, this week, we have, or I have, Vina Dubal on the show, on the podcast. Um, we actually had a just under an hour, about a 56-minute conversation, and it will be played in its entirety. And we still didn't hit on a few issues, so at the end, you'll hear... Um, that I asked Fina if she'd come back and do a second part to this, and she said she would. Before I jump into that, though, I do want to uh, talk about something that happened last week on the podcast. So last week on the podcast, I was playing a Lyft clip um, with Lyft support from about four years ago, or it was four years ago to the day, and I just happened to notice it and pull it up. And what I was trying to, I didn't want to play it in this week's, but I was trying to Set set a little bit of the stage so that I come back around and address that. So, okay, not only in that clip did I have to waste an hour, um, get my money, get my pat, make sure my passenger's money was refunded, make sure that the prior trip that my passenger had made was canceled and that or that it was refunded for the cancellation fee for the driver no show, and um, just the whole thing. And I don't say this is, you know, we, we, you know, why would you do that? Well, I would do that because, again, this is my business. This is my, I'm an independent contractor. This is my business. These are my customers. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where as many times as I've been in business, there's a cost of doing business that goes beyond just the everyday costs of doing business, which is, you know, time basically that, you don't account for, and you can't really factor into your money when you're kind of at that level. Now, am I saying that, um, you know, that if you're a business that you're just, a, you're obviously a bad person? <laughs> no, not at all. I'm just trying to point out that, you know, that was a situation where everybody won in the end, but I lost an hour of my life <laughs> and during time when I would have made really good money. That was in the morning, still in Denver. Um, but, you know, I don't know. Uh, there was a lot of uh, time gaps that I cut out of that clip as well. So it was it was not like that was the whole thing. And you know that I don't cut things, but um, that that one had to be cut because it was just, there would have been just silence for, you know, six, then another five, then another eight minutes of just silence while I was waiting. So on top of all the stuff, and if and if you did catch the only other one, one thing I want to mention, if you did catch it, um, is that... Uh, she kept saying, and and she was very nice, the customer support lady, but she kept saying, hold on, let me calculate this. 
But I'd already calculated, and every time I confirmed that with her, she was like, right, well, I'm just still calculating it. And I was like, all right. Anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, I had a Chad, the gig economist, what up, Chad, um, asked me about that. Why, why was that in there? He didn't get the meaning. And I said, well, I'm trying to bring it back around on this week's podcast um, with Vina Duval because we are going to dive into AB5, Prop 22, and um, touch a little bit on uh, H1234 and, and some other things too, people. I mean, the this is, a, this is an interview that you'll want to hear. Um, and we will be getting Vina back on for a part two, which will address the more now pressing things, um, like ProAct, and then some of the union questions that we didn't get to get to. But, um, but this is is not to disappoint. So, uh, real quick before I do, uh, before I switch us into the interview with Vina, Curry baby, has everybody signed up for Curry yet? Come on, for real? All right, guys, check this out. So Curry makes things simple for our drivers. When a booker makes a delivery request, we match them to a driver in our fleet. If you're selected for a delivery, you'll get a notification that offers you the job. You'll be able to see the size of the delivery, the route, and how long it will take. Once you accept the job, you just hop in your vehicle and head to the pickup location. At the pickup location, you'll need to confirm the delivery is what your order is in the app. Um, once you have the delivery loaded in your vehicle, you'll head to the drop-off location. Now, remember, folks, too, um, pause here because uh, it says once you have the delivery loaded in your vehicle. That's not you that does it. You don't do the unlo- the loading or the unloading on the hotshot routes. So... Back to it. At this point, your booker will receive live tracking and notifications of your progress. Once you've arrived at the drop-off location, you'll need to take a photo and signature confirmation of the delivery. Again, no loading, no unloading, just taking a picture at the other end after it's unloaded. After that, you're done. You'll get paid for the job, and you'll be ready to take on your next route. Um, or I should say hotshot route, as this referred to. But <laughs> because, guys, another thing too, um, route drivers. I got to uh, have the pleasure of doing it once with uh, um, Nathan here in Denver. And uh, shout out, Nathan, what up? And then uh, I got to do it alone the following Friday. And I'm uh, doing I'm doing some work on, a, on some pieces right now for Curry and for uh, the, the podcast here. Um, that I'll be bringing up. And then we got some Curry drivers coming up here, Not, I think, in the first week of November. It actually might be November 1st that we're recording, so the second it would drop. But um, sign up for Curry, guys. It's in the show notes. Uh, check it out. Get signed up. And, uh, yeah, you know, make some money. Uh, you know, check around. The payments are way better through the Curry platform than any other on-demand uh, app-based gig platform right now. I can't say that you'll get constant all-day rides, but I can say that there is no gig app that pays better for what you're doing than Curry. No food, no people. Um, and, geez, I almost forgot. One of the best parts. It's a day gig. Come on, people. The day gig. I mean... All the gigs we do have always been, you know, you could do them in the day or whatever, but 
when it really comes, and weekends, day maybe, but when it really comes down to it, most of them are night gigs. So come on, you know, this is a day gig. You literally are, you know, going to be busiest during construction hours. So download the app, check it out, see what you think. And uh, if you don't like it, holla at me. I don't, I don't, I can take it. I'm thick skinned. So this week, jumping into it right here. Um, Vina Dubal. Well, first, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on today, Vina. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I think I've, I've already done my research on your background. So maybe I should let you explain. Um, or could you explain how you, how you got to the point of AB5, like some of your background and stuff, because I'm not sure a lot of people know all that. Sure. So I, um, I am uh, a child of immigrants and um, really saw my family, my extended family in particular, sort of struggle um, as we were growing up. And I was always really interested in what it meant to be, um, you know, experiences with working class immigrant men, the sort of things that um, push them to certain places in the labor market. And um, after 9-11, I saw um, I there was a taxi driver in in San Francisco who was murdered um, in what many thought was a hate crime, and he was coincidentally the brother of another um, gentleman who was also murdered in the first 9/11 hate crime. Um, it was a really tragic family story, and so I sort of was I wanted to I was you know a young. Um, college student, and I wanted to reach out to um, people who were being racialized as Muslim, um, who were working in the public um, public sphere, and sort of document what their experiences were. And so I, um, I because Sukhpal Singh Sodhi, who had died, was a taxi driver. I um, started hanging out with taxi drivers in the San Jose airport, and um, was sort of asking them what their experiences had been like. And I and I heard a lot of really harrowing stories about hate violence and, um, and, you know, hate language. But what I was most surprised about was that these was the way in which these drivers worked. Um, I didn't understand at that point that the way the taxi industry worked was that you had to pay for your shift. Um, you paid for your shift and you paid for your gas and gas and gate system. Um, and that in a period of very little demand, like after 9-11, when no one was traveling and there were no tourists in the Bay Area, um, workers actually were losing money when they went home. And I thought that was just like a, a, a fascinating um, phenomenon that in, the, in America, you could work for 12 hours and go home with nothing in your pocket. And, um, and soon after that, I went to law school. And after law school, I started a taxi worker project here in San Francisco, um, and then did my dissertation on a century worth of taxi worker organizing. And then, um, uh, you know, as I was filing my dissertation, I started hearing from taxi workers about how there were these, this was like 2013, um, how there were these people in just regular unmarked cars, um, you know, cutting in front of them, cutting in front of them at the hotel lines. Um, and they, seemed to be summoned there uh, via 
you know, people's smartphones and how these people were operating illegally. Um, and I really didn't think very much of it. I, you know, there's a long history of, um, of illegal limo competition in San Francisco and in most urban areas, the black cars. And I thought, well, this is like the black car um, system, but it's going to go away because I didn't at the time think it was, it was, it was going to catch on. I didn't think that people would get into other people's cars um, and that were largely unregulated. And I, I sort of thought that the city would, would put an end to it. Um, and of course they didn't. Um, Mayor Ed Lee, who has since passed, um, really celebrated Lyft in particular. He even declared, I think it was July 2013 or 2014, Lyft Day officially in San Francisco and um, and saw this as a way to attract a lot of tech money um, into the Bay Area. And soon after that, um, you know, and, and do do in large part, I think, to um, to the the connections that these companies, Uber and Lyft's lobbyists, had. Um, the 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 companies were legalized in California, and what became the first set of state regulations. Um, I think in 2014, and they created this category called the Transportation Network Company. And what's interesting is that they they created this legal category, and there were some regulations in the state state um, that were promulgated by the state body called the California Public Utilities Committee that or commission that regulates um, the transportation network companies. But there was nothing with regard to labor. So even though the taxi workers had been independent contractors, um, they had um, regulated fares, they had regulated leases, and they had regulated demand. And as a result, um, except in periods of really low demand, like post 9-11, um, or, you know, would have been the case during the pandemic, workers were, were able to make, you know, an, not bad living. Um, it was unprotected work largely, but in, in, in San Francisco, they had workers' compensation and unemployment insurance. Um, and so all of a sudden, you know, Cars were, were flooded. There were a flood of Uber and Lyfts in, in the Bay Area. Medallions became worthless overnight. Um, and slowly but surely, uh, what, what we knew was going to happen was wages were going to drop. And that was certainly the case between 2016 and 2018. Wages dropped precipitously for, um, for workers in California, for Uber and Lyft drivers in California. And that's, of course, because the wages previous to that time had been highly subsidized by venture capital funding. Um, and so you asked me how we got to AB5. So I, I know that I that, that there are um, that there are wings of, of, of Twitter that think that I am responsible for AB5. But in fact, um, the way we got AB5 in California was through this decision called Dynamics, um, which was really, I think, many of us were watching this decision. But what they, the Supreme Court did was unexpected. Um, and that is Dynamics was like, it was a decade long misclassification case involving on right? yeah, yeah um, on demand um, delivery drivers. Um, so mm. these were like the guys who um, delivered Sears, Roebuck, um, Roebuck's appliances, and they had been converted overnight from employees to independent contractors, um, and they were mad because they lost all their benefits, and um, and these lawyers sued on their behalf and 10 years into the litigation, they, um, the plaintiffs won. And the California Supreme Court in their decision said, you know, um, basically we're tired of 
companies trying to get out from underneath wage laws um, because we have wage laws to make sure that people who work are able to make have a modicum of dignity through their work. And so they said, in order to get at this issue of misclassification, what we're going to do is we're going to change the test for who is an employee. And um, prior to that time, the test that was being used was um, a test that was derived from tort law, you know, from like 18th century tort you, law. You're talking about the IRS test. Um, not it's, it wasn't the IRS test actually. Um, okay. It was it was called the it's, it was a, the IRS is a test is derivative of the control test. Mm-hmm. Um, and in California, we had um, a test called the Borello test that came um, through another California Supreme Court decision in the early 90s, late 80s, um, that had to do with cucumber farmers um, who were essentially, you know, operating under the same um, same business model, they, the farmer, um, asked them to pick cucumbers. Um, they had to bring their own, their own capital, you know, their own digging equipment, um, et cetera, to the fields. Um, and then they got a percentage of whatever the, um, whatever the farmer was able to sell, they got a percentage of it after, after the, the sale was made. Um, and the, and the court in that case said, you know, these, these cucumber uh, pickers are our employees of the farmer, of the grower. They are not independent contractors. And they they created this Borello test. And an element of all of the elements of the ABC test are actually embodied in the Borello test. Um, but what prompted the court to do this, I think, was um, a whole other set of cases um, that involved FedEx ground transportation. Um, I'm sorry, FedEx home delivery. So um, in, a, in another series of misclassification cases involving FedEx, um, FedEx lost after a, what, what amounted to about a billion dollars worth of misclassification litigation. Um, the Ninth Circuit said using the Borello test that these workers were employees. And instead of treating the workers like employees, they used the court's decision to redraw their business model such that it looked like they had independent contractors. And so um, I think to get at the fact that the the control test was so easy to get out from under, the Borello test was easy for particularly deep-pocketed employers to to manipulate, the the California Supreme Court in Dynamics in 2018 said, you know, for wage purposes, we're going to use the ABC test. Um, This is a test that has been used in over half of the states for unemployment insurance laws to determine who gets unemployment insurance and workers' compensation. And now we're going to use it for wage purposes in California. Um, Immediately, I think it became very clear to the tech companies that this meant that they were going to have to provide um, minimum wage and overtime protections to drivers. Um, And so instead of, you know, obeying the law, like a lot of small mom and pop businesses did, they decided to... um, to try and get out from under the law. And um, instead, um, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez said, you know, instead of instead of letting you get your way, we're going to celebrate this law and we're going to put it into the California Labor Code. So we're going to take it from being judge-made law um, that the that the court wrote, and we're going to um, pass it as the leg- as part of the legislature. Um, and as a, as a legislature and, and put it directly into um, 
into the, 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 the labor code. And she extended it. So the California Supreme Court had just had it um, for wage purposes. And she extended it to apply to all of the labor code and the unemployment insurance code, which meant that, um, you know, there was a presumption of employment for all workers in California and that in order for them to get out from underneath the, um, the law, if, an, if a hiring entity wanted to use an independent contractor, not an employee, they had to satisfy this three-part test. And critically, they had to prove that the person was doing something different. The worker was doing something different um, than the usual course of the company's business. And so it was going to be very hard for a company like Uber to say, well, Uber drivers are doing something different than what we Uber Corporation are doing. Um, and in fact, when the law was nominally enforced by the um, by the appellate court in October of 2020, that is precisely what the court said. The court said, you are a transportation company and your workers are doing transportation work. Um, and unfortunately, we never got to see what that you know, what that might have looked like, um, looked like in California, um, because we, the companies, of course, passed Proposition 22. Right. Um, so a couple things there. Uh, so the B prong, obviously, is the prong that most people talk about and have trouble with. And I know that a lot of pe- people, even the non-app-based, non-on-demand get, uh, gig economy, the more traditional gig economy, um, caught a lot of people in that net as well. Were those people supposed to be in that as well? I mean, I mean, is that? I feel like AB five initially, like, like maybe it's just because of the the circles I was hearing it in, but I felt like it was very much geared to the app based on demand world, not the traditional freelancers and writers and the, those who needed yeah. some carve outs. You know, I, I don't know, honestly. I, I mean, again, contrary to, to popular opinion, I, I didn't have anything to do with the writing of AB5. Um, my sense is that there has been a lot of fear amongst regulators, both in the United States and abroad. So this is a worldwide phenomenon. I hear this when I'm talking to regulators in Europe, um, in, in, in Asia, in South America, um, a lot of fear that these app-based companies are going to start um, a sort of revolution in which employment and labor laws have no, um, you know, just don't matter. And um, and so my, my sense is that um, their AB5 wasn't necessarily um, aimed at these companies in particular, that it was aimed at a longstanding problem of misclassification. Um, you know, misclassification has been a huge problem in the janitorial industry, in the construction industry, um, in the transportation industry, in the trucking industry for, for decades, since the 1970s, late 1970s, early 80s. This has been, this has been a huge issue. Um, but that I think that I, I think you're right that it spoke to a real fear. Like the time was now because, you know, I can't speak to what the Supreme Court justices were thinking when they wrote they wrote the dynamics decision, but I can only imagine that in the back of their minds, even though they were ruling on an offline company's practices, um, you know, an offline delivery company's practices, they were really worried about the growth and proliferation of, of misclassification more broadly. Um, through through people or through companies that we call gig economy companies. Right. 
Right. I just, I, you know, I've, I've had, a, I've had mostly we have guests on the, on the show who are in the, what you, what you and I are now calling gig economy, but I have had a couple people from the traditional side too, mm-hmm. who even after prop 22 and before um, the recent overturn of prop 22 were caught in that net during this pandemic. I mean, as I'm sure that you have heard this a hundred thousand times too, but um, you know, they, they felt caught in a net. Whereas now Prop 22 was letting these people off who I believe AB5 was targeted at mm-hmm. and it didn't let them off, which was, I don't know, I, that, was a, that was a hard thing for a lot of people that I had talked to and they, it really never made when, sense to me why they got caught in that. When you say that it, got, it, let them, it didn't let them off, what do you, what do you, can you tell me more about what well, you Well, like, um, you know, okay, so I've had a, um, a, one of the guests I had on has a nonprofit or had a nonprofit opera house in Los Angeles um, that operated only a couple times a year. Mm-hmm. And she had been in business for 22 years and in the industry for 35. She was bringing a very u- a unique niche to um, her opera house based on music of um, her Jewish ancestry because through the Holocaust there had been some music lost and it was passed down through her mom. Mm-hmm. This business has since closed because of AB5. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a, my, a freelancer I... that I know. And then uh-huh. I know that there were carve outs too. I, I do yeah. know that in the beginning, everybody felt it because there were even, you know, I remember newspaper people that I know going, wait a minute, what's going to happen? Yeah. But I know yeah. that they got their carve out. And... Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, again, I wasn't part of the legislative process. So I, um, I can't speak to all of the, the carve outs that eventually were made for all of these different um, different sectors. I do think that there was some hysteria um, that wasn't um, that was uh, the result of two things. Um, one, the result of the PR companies pushing the com- the, the 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 gig companies, PR companies um, pushing hysteria so as to create a mass of people who would you know, be very angry about AB5 and pro prop 22 as a result. Um, and two, I think there was a lot of bad advice that I saw from lawyers who didn't quite understand um, that, that there were even before the specific carve outs that different, different, um, different groups got different professions got that there, that there were ways um, to structure your business such that you like the, the opera, um, the opera, uh, business, for example, such that you would um, not have to worry about this. Like you could structure it as a cooperative, or you could. Um, there were like particular uh, business ways to structure a business that you could be exempt. And um, and I, what I the reason that I sort of learned of how what kind of bad advice people were getting was actually. Um, talking to some moonlighting physicians who were, who got letters saying, we, we want you essentially to create your own LLCs. We want you to create your own corporate entities um, before you can moonlight for us um, so that no one, so that you can't ever say that you're, um, you are an, you're, you're our employee. And while that made, you know, that is, that was one way to get out from underneath it is just to have everyone be their own LLC. Um, and then they're their own business entity and a real business entity and not, um, not just a, you know, a potential employee or potential contractor. But it struck me that that was, that was strange because, because doctors are largely carved out of, um, employment law protections because of their, especially wage protections because of their, um, of their, um, of their high wages. And so, you know, it's, it's really hard. There was so much, um, 
PR hysteria that was in fact manufactured, um, that it was hard for me to parse out what was um, really, you know, what was what went in instances in which people were getting bad legal advice, instances in which people were actually being adversely affected, and um, and interest in, in instances in which it was sort of just like made up. Um, I think that um, I think that of course you know as uh, the, the the fact that there were eventually uh, a legislation there was legislation to sort of clean up legislation if you will around um, around the law suggests to me that you know there were um, there were there was more that needed to be done but that's actually quite common when you have um, a any big statute there's going to be clean up legislation. Um, Are you so, referring to AB two two five seven? Yeah, I, I, I believe that is the uh, that was the that was the bill that sort of tried to assist the people who felt caught in the um, caught in the in the waves. But it's also important to note, I think, that you know, for example, um, freelance journalists were mm-hmm. um, were amongst many of the people who were some of whom were upset um, about this. But freelance journalism, the fact that the fact that um, so many journalists are not able to have things like health insurance, um, not ha- able to have a workers' compensation if they're injured, not able to have unemployment insurance, and are actually um, working primarily with one or two hiring entities, with, with one or one or two um, uh, newspapers or 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 media outlets um, speaks to the reality that journalism has really disintegrated over the last 30 years and it's created a lot of really precarious workers um, when you have a test in one state but not all over the country it's then easy for these huge media conglomerates to say okay well we're not going to use you in California if we have to treat you if we have to give you you know proper wages and protections we're just going to go to someone in in Arizona or go to someone in New Mexico um, and that is an unfortunate sort of thing that that employers do to lower labor costs um, but it is you know precarity journalism is is in dire straits um, I know a lot of of freelance journalists who want want jobs and deserve full-time jobs and actually are working for for outlets where they're essentially a full-time worker but are being um, but are being mistreated and um, and I think I think uh, I, I had I would have hoped that um, this law would have really helped those folks too. Um, but the reality of digital journalism is that it, it, is that people could you know these these sort of unsavory companies could just go elsewhere to find their find their work. Right. Um, well, that's I mean that's I mean I, I see what you're saying there. I. I, you know, I just, I'm curious because some of the people I know were even like S corps and things of that nature, but again, it could, who knows what each of the situations is. I've, I've talked to them and I know that in some ways or another, it just affected a lot of people, but I also know that musicians weren't carved out and then they were, and then interpreters weren't, but then they were. So I know it took some time. I thought that was part of AB 2257, getting back to prop 22, um, when that was voted on in November, um, I know that if I was reading the quote right from TechCrunch, that a ballot initiative cannot amend, be amended after it is passed by voters. Any unconstitutional provis- provisions renders it unenforceable, which is the reason why 
Prop 22 got overturned by Judge Frank Roche, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the so he um, one of the he found two parts of Prop 22 to be unconstitutional, and the part that one of those parts of Prop 22 that he found to be unconstitutional was the center of Prop 22. So they couldn't just excise that portion of the proposition. Um, they it, it excised the entire proposition, which is why the entire proposition was found to be unconstitutional. And it was the portion of the of the proposition, um, the part of the part of the law that said that um, workers are carved out of all um, parts of the labor code and the unemployment insurance code. And the reason that he found that to be unconstitutional is because in California, the workers' compensation scheme, um, the the legislature's plenary power to create a workers' compensation scheme is actually embodied in the California Constitution. And what Prop 22 did was to say, um, legislature, you cannot provide any kind of workers' compensation scheme to workers. Um, um, This proposition essentially forbids it. And, and he said that that actually flew in the face of, um, of the plenary power of the legislature to, to do so, to create, to create a scheme um, of, of protections for workers who do dangerous work. And it's, and it's interesting to note that that was put into the Constitution um, in the late 1900s, early two, two, I'm sorry, late 1800s, early 1900s, particularly because we were living in, um, a, you know, the or, they were living in the Gilded Age, where you had these um, deep-pocketed companies who had a lot of personal um, connections to um, to uh, lawmakers, and there was concern that they would try to get out from underneath the workers' compensation scheme or try and change the law so that they didn't have to provide um, any kinds of workers' compensation coverage for their workers. And in particular, there was concern around the deaths and injuries in transportation work because cars were starting to become more common um, and used for work purposes and accidents went through the roof. And there were just, there were so many more occupational injuries than there had ever been before. So this was, you know, to create a, um, a safety net for people who, who were injured on the job in those circumstances. Um, and I think that's relevant for a, from a policy standpoint, because of course, as, as you and your listeners know, this is very dangerous work. Um, OSHA says it's one of the most dangerous jobs um, in the country, not just as a result of people getting held up, um, but also because of accidents um, and um, injuries that come with being in the car all the time, you know, repetitive injuries that come with being in the car all the time. And so um, I think this is it's particularly this is the type of work that workers' compensation laws were created for. The other part of what um, Judge Roche, I thought I hope I'm saying that name right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Um, the other part of what Judge Roche was talking about too was the right to organize, though, as well, right? Yes. So Proposition 22, like for, and this actually didn't make the whole thing unconstitutional. I believe that this part could have been excised from the proposition. Um, But interestingly, you know, like they were really trying to have their cake and eat it too. Um, they, They just threw in a section in there that says, you know, worker, the state can't create um, a a way for these workers to organize and um, can't pass a law to to allow these workers to organize. And what the court said is that this this act, this part of the decision or this part of the um, of the proposition violated what's known as the single subject rule. And that is for um, for initiatives like this, 
the, the initiatives should only cover a single subject. And what this proposition claimed to do was to um, to make you know ensure that these workers could be independent contractors and to extend some new benefits to those workers. Um, nowhere in that statement did it say anything about pre- you know preventing them from organizing. And so the fact that they just sort of threw that in there, um, the the court said Judge Roche said violated. Um, violated the single subject rule. It was about something completely different than what the proposition claimed to be about. Um, and so for that reason too, um, that portion of the proposition was, was um, ran, ran, uh, ran counter to the California constitution. Understood. Um, so I'm, I'm one part I'm really confused on. <laughs> I don't, I'm not even sure you'll know the answer to this, but um how does a proposition like this get presented and it not get flagged that, hey, this isn't in accordance with California Constitution? Yeah, so um, the California Attorney General did um, did approve of the proposition. Um, and that's why it was allowed to go on the ballot. They approved of it as constitutional. Um, but there's always review. There's always judicial review of of these um, of propositions. And in this case, the judge is saying, um, "Look, California." And at this point, it is the California Attorney General that is defending this case, right? They it is now the law, or what you know, it is the law in California. The law passed, and so the Attorney General has to defend it. Um, um, against the plaintiffs, and so the plaintiffs are alleging. Actually, there are parts of this law that that are that are unconstitutional that the California Attorney General should never have um, allowed to to exist. And um, and looking at those allegations, the judge is saying, "Yeah, you're right. Like the the AG's office made a mistake. There are things here that are unconstitutional." But you can't um, you can't bring a suit like this until it becomes law. Like once the AG's office says. Um, gives, you know, rubber stamps it and says, sure, it can go on the ballot um, as a referendum, then you can't actually challenge its constitutionality unless it is passed, which is why there, we're having this litigation at this late date after the passage of the law. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, I'm just shocked that all these lawyers' um, eyes who were on this document didn't see it or else they did. And they said, and uh, that's the part, I guess I'm a little confused on is, you know, yeah. obviously somebody had to see this, that hey, this isn't going to yeah, I mean, the, the constitution. I think a couple of things. One, I think that um, these issues, the single subject issues rule issue, I'm, I'm sort of more surprised by because that, that just seemed very obvious to me um, at the outset, but the, um, the, workers' compensation issue carving, you know, interfering with the legislature's plenary power to um, put forth a workers' compensation scheme, this w- this is an issue of first impression. You know, the, the courts have not seen this. No one has ever tried to do this before. And so it's not immediately apparent to me that whatever lawyer at the AG's office that, that was reviewing this, that they would necessarily see this and think, oh, this is, um, this is necessarily a problem. And so, um, and you know, these are these are government lawyers. They're short-staffed, under-resourced. Um, they're, they they might not catch every every single legal issue, especially when those legal issues are um, are are new. And I think in um, in this instance, you know, there was probably just you know 
practically speaking, a lot of deference to the company's attorneys. Um, uh, there's a sense that these companies are able to hire the very best and the very brightest, and they know what that they're doing and that they, they are owed some sort of deference in their interpretation. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I know this gets really hairy and messy. So here's, um, here's a question that I would actually kick myself if I didn't address today, Sure. (laughs) which is, um, and it'll play into flex a little bit too, but so is there is is there a is there a way a path something that you see where people can choose to be employee or independent contractor and i say this because like in my case um i prefer to be an independent contractor because i do a variety of jobs you know i, I work for a laser company um i sometimes do um uh freelance social media I run my website and podcast. Um, I, you know, I, I work SAAS platforms like we've talked Uh about. So for me, it's such a jumbled mess. And if I'm in working production, I could be gone for seven weeks, eight weeks at a time. Yeah. Come back and I need work for five, six weeks. Yeah, I hear you. So I think there are two really important things to, um, to understand here. And that is that people really need and like this work. Um, for for two primary reasons. One, because of the kinds of flexible scheduling that you just articulated. Um, you know, if you there, I know a lot of people who live transnational lives, and they will work really hard for six months, um, make some money, and then go home um, and live with their family, you know, their wife and kids for another six months in in South Asia or you know the Middle East, and then come back and do the same thing. And it's their lifestyle; it's what they've sort of embraced, and it's what they want to be able to do. And this enables that. Um, the other thing is that no one wants a boss. I don't want a boss. You don't want a boss. No one wants a boss in America. Um, you know, employment law is rooted in the English common law of the master-servant relationship. Um, employees have very little power on the job. There is so much deference to, um, to employers and what they're allowed to do to people, what they're allowed to say to people, how they're allowed to treat people. Um, and I think there's some sense, and I think this is probably accurate. Um, there's a sense that, you know, these companies, they, if they pretend like their workforce is an independent contractor workforce, then they are prohibited from doing certain things. Like they're not going to tell you to wear a uniform. Um, what I hear from workers that I, that I organize with is that what pisses them off is that they want to be contractors, but that they're treated like employees. And this is true across the board, right? Like this is true for all misclassified workers. When you talk to those FedEx workers, when you talk to the misclassified nail salon workers, these are people who say, look, I want to not be controlled by a boss, but they set my wages. They tell them, they drop my wages. They punish me if I don't do the things that they, they need for me to do. And they can terminate me at any time. And I can't actually negotiate these terms with them in any meaningful way. Like I'm not actually being treated like a true small business person. And so then the question from a policy standpoint becomes, how do you preserve flexibility while also creating security? And I think that what we have to remember here is that what's on the line is not just ride hail work, not just food delivery work, but really all service work. Because if we can, you know, all corporations want to lower their labor overhead, 
everyone does. Since the 1970s, this idea of having a, a worker that was loyal, that stayed with you, and that, who got a gold watch at the end of their you know, 40-year tenure um, alongside their good pension, you know, this is just gone. And HR sees employee, uh, workers, they see employees, um, they see them as a, a necessary overhead that they want to minimize. Um, and so companies like Google will do this by hiring through staffing agencies. You know, you, Google has more um, workers that they hire through staffing agencies than they do have full-time employees. And companies like Uber and Lyft will use contractor labor as opposed to employees so that they don't have to deal with the one the one third um, uh, one, uh, the, the additional 37, 33% overhead that they would have to pay into unemployment insurance, that they would have to pay in workers' compensation, et cetera. But there's nothing actually about, like you can be an employee and um, for, for workers' compensation purposes, but not be an employee for, um, for wage purposes. So like there's not... Um, the law is not written in such a way as like you're either an employee or you're an independent contractor. Um, the law was really written as in like when it was written in the 1930s during the New Deal as a way that all subordinated workers, um, people who worked with or for corporations, had the ability to have some semblance of security in their lives. So the idea was you should be able to, if you work for 40 hours a week, you should be able to um, predict how much you're going to make during those 40 hours a week to, to protect your family. If you work in a dangerous job, you should have some protection. Um, instead of instead of paying for these things through taxes um, that were imposed more broadly, they they paid pay for them specifically through employer taxes. And so, because you pay for so, for social security, workers' compensation, unemployment insurance through employer taxes, it incentivizes. Um, hiring entities to say, well, we don't have an employer. We don't employ anyone. We're not, we're not employees. Um, and so that leaves me with these two issues. On the one hand, you have um, a workforce that clearly needs security. We know that one, um, one fifth of workers in the Bay Area prior to Prop 22, is a study that was done prior to Prop 22, um, after you counted for their expenses, they were making zero money. So this is a precarious workforce that needs some security. On the other hand, these are people who also need flexibility mm-hmm. um, and that cannot work nine to five, nine to five jobs. So how do you get both of these things? Um, my, I think that one of the amazing things that technology makes possible is, um, is flexibility. <laughs> like you actually could have like in, and if the companies wanted you to, you could have the same flexibility that you have today and have workers' compensation and have unemployment insurance. It's that they don't, that they want to hold that that gun to your head to say, look, if we have to give you workers' compensation, if we have to give you unemployment insurance, then we're never, then we'll take away all of your flexibility. Um, it's not clear to me that they would take away that flexibility because then I think they wouldn't have a workforce. Um, but how do you how do you create flexibility? And I think that there are two ways to do that, two ways to create flexibility alongside um, alongside security. And that is we could legislate for flexibility. We could say, look, no matter what, if you are working for an app-based company, you can log on anytime and work anytime within some sort of reasonable boundaries. Um, and, um, And that would sort of prevent them from saying, you know, look, Steve, if you haven't worked for six weeks, you can't work after that. Um, 
But I think that um, another way to get there, and this is something that we've seen um, in the for much of the 20th century, is through union contracts. Um, you know, when you have a, con- a a union that is a collective bargaining unit that is bargaining on behalf of a workforce, they can bargain for things like flexibility. And in fact, we I saw that in the t- you know my studies of the taxi industry um, for. Through, for most of the 20th century, from like 1909 to the night through the ni- late 1970s, the taxi workforce was was flexible in the same way that you that you know you and I understand flexibility. There were many people again who lived transnational lives, particularly in the 60s and 70s, who came and went. Um, there was a lot of like sitting around drinking coffee, eating sandwiches, um, uh, people working when they needed to, and that was all part of the way the the um, the union was able to structure. Um, structure work. And, you know, that's not to say that that was, that was a perfect time or that those were perfect. Um, you know, there were other things wrong, I think with the taxi industry, which I write about, um, in some great length, but the, the, again, like it is possible, it is possible to have security and it is possible to have flexibility. And I think that the fact that the narrative is one or the other, um, is, is, is part of, it's an employer narrative. It's the narrative of the company that, that wants to give as little to their workers as possible um, and, and to take as much as possible. You know, there's no, there are, there's, there are actually, there are some companies in San Francisco as a result of AB5 who are on-demand companies. Um, I have a colleague who writes about this, um, Juliet Shore, you should look at her work, um, who are on-demand companies that actually move to an employee model. And they say two things. They say, um, and and still have flexibility. Um, they say two things. One are it's actually been better for them because they have um, they have not they don't have such churn or turnover. Like they have the same workforce that they like like and that and that they um, that is sort of professionalized and knows what they're doing. Um, and um, and the workers say like great. <laughs> like I have the best of both worlds. I have flexibility and I have. Um, and I have the ability to um, predict at the end of the day how much I'm going to make, and I'm not worried about like a rate cut in in two weeks' time. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like this can all be engineered. There's no like, there's no way that this like, th- there's no world in which this has to be work that is unpredictable and unprotected and inflexible. Um, it can be any combination of flexible, predictable. I mean, it, could, it, it can be all of these things. It's just, it's just a matter of re-situating where they invest their money, you know, instead of giving the CEO a um, billion dollars, instead of paying lawyers billions of dollars to fight these lawsuits, instead of paying lobbyists billions of dollars to, um, to change the law, like they could, they could reallocate this money and, um, and, and provide um, provide flexibility to their workforce simultaneously. They just don't want to. Well, I think that part of the, I mean, everybody I talk to is that, you know, the big, when it comes down to flexibility, it's, um, we, we know it's not a law that a company can't let you have flex work. It's that, no company does. Well, I mean, companies, this is what I was just saying, is that companies have been doing this since 85 passed in California. And right. it's possible. I, ju- I just mean the actual, what we're used to is the gig model of being able to jump on. That yeah. no, that, that's, they that is pre- precisely what's happening. I mean, right. they, um, they, uh, you of course have they to They would limit. have to move to some kind of limiting and 
Well, what they did was they limited, they just say like, we have X number of people and these are the people that were, that are going to, you know, have flexible schedules to work. And it's not like everyone in the world who wants to sign up for Uber can sign up for Uber, but that's like, of course, what you want in any labor market. You don't want like unbridled supply of workers when demand is so low. Otherwise you get a situation like we have here in California and the Bay area where people are driving 16 hours um, and not able to make a living because there's so many people all of a sudden driving now that their unemployment insurance has run out. Um, so like, of course you, I mean, that's like good business <laughs> that you, it's good business, good for the workers to have to say like, yes, we want a finite number of people who do this job um, we don't want, you know, everyone, everyone in the world doing the job, but, um, but, uh, but those, those workers who are doing it can have flexibility and there can be two tiers of workers. There can be part-time workers and full-time workers and part-time workers can work during periods of high demand and full-time workers can work whenever. I mean, there's so many ways to do this. And the trade-off here is that a majority um, racial minority and immigrant workforce. Um, these are people for the for the most part, the people that are doing the, the work, um, as you know, the most of the work are people who are working more than 30 hours a week. And, um, and these are people who 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 need these are people for whom uh, minimum wage laws were written, who for whom unemployment insurance laws were written, for whom workers' compensation laws were written, and they need these basic protections. I also hear very, very, um, very clearly that they want and need flexibility. And I've been talking for, you know, for a while to legislators, legislators about how they need to move to, to facilitate this just as they have, um, the, as they have moved to, um, to provide basic protections. Yeah. I mean, because I know, I mean, just most, almost every driver I talk to, <coughs> excuse me. And again, it's, it's market to market. I mean, I talk to so many markets where people are doing great. Um, I talked mm-hmm. to so many markets that are so flooded that you can't make a dime. Yeah. Um, so it it really and, is. And that is precisely like that is always going to be the case without regulation, you know, right. and it's going to, and it's going to, and what will happen of course is um, it might change. It might be one market that's flush with cash right now or flush with demand. And then that will rapidly shift for various reasons. Um, and those rapid shifts end up hurting, um, hurting the people who are producing the value for the company. Um, you know, it's not going to hurt the engineer or the PR guy or the government relations executive. It's going to hurt the driver um, who doesn't have, who's not going to have anything to fall back on. Okay. Um, so I have one last question for you today, Vina, and I'm, sure. I'm going to cut you free and I really appreciate your time. But uh, so moving aside from California and AB5, because right now I feel like, you know, I also get you know, I, I get so upset with both ways of looking at this often because the companies, even who wrote Pro, Prop 22, clearly there's been some issues with them following Prop 22 that they wrote themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that. So, I mean, you know, the state that it's in right now, I, I understand that it's going to now come to California having to decide about the AB5 thing and and without getting into PROAC, because I think that's a little too much for today. I wanted to at least ask you about Massachusetts Bill H one two three four. Yeah, and, and I wanted to ask you about this because it appears like they in the beginning when I was first watching this, it appeared to be modeling AB five, but now it seems to be trying to do some things in a different way. Like the, is it the Coalition to Protect Workers? Yeah, HR one two three four is a Prop twenty two um, uh, copycat law. 
Um, so it has, it has the same things that, um, that prop 22 has, uh, which is to make all the workers independent contractors. And so to, this, this law is being trying to be passed before an AB five type law. They're yes. trying to pass the tw- prop 22 type first. Yes. Yeah. So they're doing two things. They have introduced this, um, this, uh, this house bill. That's very much like prop 22. They've also introduced an initiative. It's very strategic. So they've introduced initiative, which would also be just like prop 22 and is just like prop 22, but would be, um, you know, not all States have a, have an initiative system of a direct democracy system, but Massachusetts does just like California. And so they have introduced both things. Um, the initiative would not be voted on until um, uh, 2022, so the next mm-hmm. year. Um, and what they're trying to do, I think, is to spur enough. Um, like, I think that it's. I think that they know that they likely wouldn't be able to pass such an initiative in Massachusetts because of the bad reputation that Prop 22 has after it got passed in California. You know, there's a lot of regret in California, even by people who who, who voted in favor of the law, um, given what we've seen and you know the amount of misinformation that went into passing the law. And so, um, I think that what they're trying to do is to uh, to create some sort of compromise at the legislative level. So it's like a game of um, Oh, what's, you know, like, it's like they're, they're starting at the bottom with this HR one, two, three, four, or whatever it's, whatever the number is. And, um, and then trying to see if they can get, um, you know, stakeholders, uh, unions, drivers, groups to bargain with them over something that's maybe a little better than prop 22, um, but not quite employment status. I mean, I, cause I see this as, I mean, now that you know you're you're stating it like that, I see this as they're gonna if they're doing. I'm, I, first of all, I really don't understand why they're. I I would guess that it's because there's a there's legislation coming. And oh they're no, they're doing this because that. they're doing this because Attorney General Maura Healy has sued them. Um, they already have the ABC test in Massachusetts. Um, okay. They've had so, it for for years since the '90s, and so um, the Attorney General of the state has sued them to comply with the law. Um, and they, um, and so it's, they're, they're in a, the same situation that we were in, um, la, you know, in, in 2020 and early 2020. And so they're trying to, um, before that, before, before that lawsuit, um, is decided and, and there is an injunction against them, they're trying to get a law passed that will relieve them of this, um, of these duties. And you're, you're talking about the time when AB5 was passed until the time that, Yes, they threatened to leave passed. until yeah. the Prop Twenty Two vote. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Um, so that's what's going on in um, in in Massachusetts. But we now it's interesting. I mean, we have a roadmap for their for what they do. Well, um, and that's that's what I was going to hit on here was that I was going to say. So in California, Prop Twenty Two costs two hundred and five million three hundred and seventy thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, fifty nine point five DoorDash, fifty two point one, or that was Uber, fifty two point one DoorDash. 49 left and then 31.6 Instacart and Postmates did a little bit, but that's not Uber. Right. But is that, do you think that that's going to become a pattern for States then is that Uber and Lyft are going to move this thing and keep spending $205 million in every state? Well, I think that not every state has a proposition system. So there are a finite number of states and the um, so this has been there. This is what they've been done. First, what they did was they tried to get all local regulation preempted. So in most states in, um, in the U.S., 
local regulators are not allowed to do anything. They're not allowed to touch Uber and Lyft. It's all done by state regulators. So in California, only the CPUC can do anything with regard to regulating Uber and Lyft or the California legislature. Like the city of San Francisco, for example, can't say we need emergency sick leave for these workers because the CPUC preempts uh, preempts their ability to do any kind of local regulation. And this is true. They've done this all over the country. They have um, created situations where there can only be state regulation, um, whether they've done that through through laws or, or what have you. This is what they've done. So now their next thing, now that they've created a, a, a legal environment in which they only have to deal with states, um, their next thing is to pass state-level laws like Prop 22. And so they have this going on in Massachusetts. Um, They also have this going on in Ontario. This was just introduced in Ontario um, and Canada as well. Um, I think that they're trying something similar in in Massachusetts. Um, They tried something similar in Connecticut. So anywhere that they see a threat to their business model or they see legislatures moving to to provide workers any benefits like unemployment insurance, for example, they're gonna. They're going to. They're gonna try and introduce introduce this. It's worth noting in um, in New York State, mm-hmm. Uber and Lyft drivers are employees for purposes of unemployment insurance. They get um, they they get UI as a result of um, litigation by the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, and they're eligible for UI, which has been really 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 important um, during the pandemic because UI actually offers a lot more than PUA. Um, it's like significant. You know, it can be up to in California. It was up to something like a thousand dollars a month more, um, right. and um, and in New York City, workers also have a wage floor. Um, um, and there are some issues with flexibility. Um, you know, they've what they've done is basically made it difficult for drivers to like get if they're driving back into Manhattan to get on. Um, all all things that can be regulated for there. I mean, they're doing it on purpose so that this model doesn't spread, but it is possible to have like unemployment insurance and a wage floor. And, um, and I think that what the, um, what the drivers in New York city have pushed for and gotten um, is such like a beautiful, a a beautiful example of, of really um, what is possible elsewhere. And they do not want it to spread. So they tried this in New York State, also, as you know, um, and there it was. The effort was subverted in large part because they, because drivers were going to have to give away these two things that they've won: unemployment insurance and a wage floor. Well, um, I could ask you questions all day long, but I know that uh, we're going to wrap it up here. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I have to go pick up my kids from yeah, school. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> I, I got, and my son is home as well now too. But I really That's do fun. appreciate your time, and I hope that maybe sometime down the road we could meet, have, do this again because I I have pages of stuff I would love yeah. to ask you. But um, sounds great. Well, I'll look forward to that, and um, thank you so much for having me. And I um, and it's wonderful that you do this, and I look forward to listening to it. Thank you, Vina, for coming on. Take care. Bye bye. Have a good day. You too. Well, I want to give a huge thank you to Vina Dubal for being on the podcast this week. We covered quite a bit, leaving only a few more things to go over when we do the follow-up to this piece, which um, I will hopefully get scheduled here uh, in the next few, maybe by the end of this week. Um, It might be a little ways out, but uh, I think we have just, you know, I have just a uh, oh, three or four other things that we didn't get to today that I'd really like to get to. 
Um, so luckily she said she'd be willing to come back on and uh, do this again. So we will have her back for the other part. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, uberliftdrivers.com. Go to contact, and you can send off emails that way through the contact link. You can also uh, hit us up at uh, steve at withpara.com or rideshare rodeo podcast at gmail.com. And uh, other than that, um, you know, great episode, lots of informa- information to be taken in by everybody. Again, remember, folks, I love doing uh, pieces that are controversial. I love having people on that know the topic matter and getting all the viewpoints. So um, always fun. Last thing, curry, 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 curry curry.com people. Um, You know, I I talked about in the beginning, there are sponsors of the podcast and uh, I have dabbled my hand on the platform and I can say it is definitely a platform to be worked. You, when you get the request, you will make much better money than you make elsewhere. It's a day gig, and uh, and watch for routes that open up, too, because that's a really good uh, gig to look into. So keep an eye on your market and uh, see you know what the volume of Curry looks like it's doing, but get signed up now, because uh, once they cu- once they hit your market hard, uh, the you know it'll be better if you've already been on the platform, you know so and who knows what you'll catch in the meantime, too, because they are live everywhere as long as they get a call it could happen at any time so get signed up people links in the show notes next week hannibal is hungry and the week after uh have mike delivers and the week after i believe is the week that we have the curry drivers from different markets who are going to come on and and talk to us about the platform and uh their experiences so Uh, We'll go from there. I got a bunch of other stuff coming up too. But uh, for now, that's it. Uh, Thanks for joining us. And we will see you back here next week on the rodeo. Peace.